All right, guys, we're live again. And uh, as usual, I'm going to start out with on your marks, set, go. Welcome to another episode of Real Talk with Ian and Ian. We're so happy. We're so delighted to come back another Sunday afternoon at the 9 p.m. with our special guest, a man that you guys have heard about uh, at a very tender age. He was up in the rising of track and field. Um, he won his first world championship medal at the age of 22, and he's the first Bahamian male athlete to win a world championship title. So it's no other than Avard Moncourt. But before we hear from Avard, I'm going to let Ian Thomas, the health and wellness specialist, introduce himself and to welcome you also to another episode. Yes, another night. We just want to say it's always a pleasure to be here on a Sunday night and uh, just to be here with our audience and our followers who have been inspired every week, you know, educated by our guests. And tonight with us, we know we'll not fall short on that because this gentleman have delivered over the years, delivered on and off the track. So tonight we just want to have you guys help us welcome Avard Mancor, a man from Bahamas, you know, just like Jamaica, you know, the Caribbean culture. So Avard, welcome to Ian and Ian show, man. Thank you, Ian and Ian. I didn't pay attention to the guys. The same name spelled similar. <laughs> but I think that's cool. <laughs> um, I really think this is a great thing that you guys are doing in terms of uh, creating a platform. Uh, to you know, re, kind of revisit athletes that have done things in the past and allow um, you know, open a door for young people to be inspired in some way or another based on things that we've done and what we've learned in the past. So I think that's an awesome accomplishment that you guys are doing. All right, and we appreciate it. We appreciate for you to take um, time out to your, your your busy schedule on your Sunday evening to share some of the knowledge and experience some of the obstacles, some of the um, the challenges that you face. And, you know, because the goal of this program is to educate, motivate, and inspire someone um, that might watch it today, tomorrow, next week, next year. Um, you, know, you know, we just never know. So we are so happy that we want to, you know, deliver live testimony. Now we're going through a pandemic and a lot of people um, is spending a lot more time at home. And, um, you know, so we was very uh, motivated, um, you know, six, six, seven months to go to, to actually um, say, you know what, you know, let's let's try to revisit and let's try to bring a platform where people could, um, the script is not set, you know, this is just real conversation. And, uh, you know, <laughs> you know and, I, I we pretty much um from a from a track and field standpoint um you know understand the sport and you know understand about athletics and just want to talk about some of the your your, your give you opportunity just to share some things that you might not have the time and and just to as I said to inspire someone in so many ways so as usual we start from the grassroots level you know we always go back from the grassroots because we always got to know where the whole thing have started 
Um, obviously, you're from a country with a rich nation of track and field um, and has become a powerhouse um, in the 400 meter and many other events. I mean, everybody here about Bahamas and obviously you got one of the top destination country in the world. Um, you know, you guys have hosted the World Relay and you guys have, have produced, uh, I've been friends with several athletes from the Bahamas, um, you know, because of just being from the Caribbean, you know, all the way back from Debbie Ferguson, uh, Mackenzie. So, yeah, you know, so if, if she watched this, we give her a shout out. Um, Troy McIntosh, Joe Styles, um, Ramon, Chris Brown, everybody. We're going to shout out some more people as the program go on. <laughs> so, Avar, we're going to start back from the grassroots. Just tell us a little bit about, about what high school did you go to and when did you actually start doing athletics? Well, athletics kind of um, was one of those things that I, I wasn't I didn't, I, I wasn't interested in it. It was kind of just something I did to hang with friends. And um, I just remember you know, one year, actually in elementary school, we had this uh, sports day. And this kid, um, I didn't participate, but I saw the kid and he was just winning everything. And, um, you know, just admired the respect that he was getting. You know, uh, I think he just really looked accomplished in the eyes of teachers and stuff like that. I saw that it was definitely an honorable thing that he was doing. So the next year I said, well, well, you know, I don't know. I just kind of feel like I could beat him, you know? <laughs> and um, so the next year we actually was able to go to the uh, Thomas A. Rod Robinson Track Stadium, which is our national stadium. And, you know, my teacher, she was just like, I'm gonna put you in the 400. And I was like, I gotta run around this whole thing, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but I'm like, yeah, she said, but I'm gonna put him in the race too. So I was like, okay, well, I think I could beat him, so I'll, I'll do the I'll do this event. And you know, when I started the event, and you know, I was able to beat him, and you know, I felt like I was pretty accomplished and pretty much uh, did everything that I needed to do. But you know, there are some people around me who just saw something that I didn't, I couldn't see, and obviously I didn't care about. It. I just wanted to beat him, you know. <laughs> um, and there's this lady. Her name is Diane Thompson. Um, she she uh, she was a, a teacher from Pittsburgh, and basically she started a track club. Uh, it was it was very interesting track club because you know we didn't have a lot of support. It was called World Riders Track Club, and she just had like a gold gold Nissan Sunny. I don't even think people know what that car is, but basically she would like jam a bunch of kids in this car. I'm sure at some point there's something illegal about that. But anyway, um, she would take all of us and train us and basically expose us to the sport of track and field. And she just educated us of who, who, who the people were that we should look up to and be knowledgeable about in the sport. Um, and really just with that guiding force and, and introduced us to track and field in a very untraditional, unorthodox way. It almost felt like we were just using our time to just have fun while also learning something different. It wasn't competitive. It wasn't yeah. to do this. We never thought about time. It wasn't until I was 16 um, when I heard about the Heuristic Games when she started talking about times. And I was like, hold on, hold on, wait a minute. I thought you were just supposed to win, <laughs> you know? Um, but anyway, um, that's when it became very serious because the workout started to change 
dramatically. I had to get a little bit more structure in my training and so forth. And, um, you know, she really uh, created a lot of opportunities for us to be competitive. And I remember going to my first Carifta trials and making it, it was in the Cayman Islands. And I had no clue, all I heard about the Jamaicans. <laughs> you know, and people were just fearful of the Jamaicans. Um, so I remember once I made the finals in the 400, um, I know that I just remember the Jamaican guy just going us so fast. And I'm not I'm not really that fast guy. I really have a, a really um, deliberate uh, pace and it, it, nothing exciting about it. It looks very smooth. Um, and I just was they're going so fast. I said, but they're going to die. And they eventually did die. And I won the, my first Carifter championship. And I just remember the feeling and the thrill that went along with that. Um, it was just like nothing that I'd ever experienced. Once I got home to the airport and my family was at the airport and when I went to school, everyone knew who I was and so forth. I knew that this was something that was going to be important for my life. and something that I wanted to be involved in because I only got a lot of positive feedback from the accomplishments I'd done at that point. All right, man. Thank you for that great, great introduction. Um, I know that um, everyone has a reason and someone, everyone have a, a way of getting into the sport. Uh, you know, I know one guy told me that um, <laughs> he used to have to run to the shop, you know, and, and come back. You know, um, another person said that dad used to have them run to go get water in the morning. And, you know, it, it's all kind of different stories that uh, get people to get started in track and field. Well, but back, go ahead. No, you go ahead. The interesting thing about that is that because, you know, the initial coach I had, she didn't have like means to get us to her from the track all the time. So what she did was that she gave a newsletter and basically she taught us how to measure our distances using the, the lamp pole, the lamp, the, the light poles, whatever you want to call them, the utility poles. And she would say, if you go from there, for that's 30 meters. So if you put three of them together, you have about a hundred meters. So you just need to go a little further. So my mom would just send me to the store every day. I don't know, I, it's like, I, I never, I think she just always had something that she needed from the store. And so I figured the days that I couldn't get to the track, I would use that method of creating, it was probably about two miles from my house. I would just break the two miles into intervals, you know, kind of use the poles as measurements in order to get some type of interval training on days that I didn't get to go to a track. And that that, that was a very long time that I had to do it that way. Um, because when I um, actually did my career, I, I hadn't really had the kind of training like some of the kids from the private schools who are really engrossed in like really advanced programs. Um, like my, my way of preparation was very different from them. But because of her guiding us through this, teaching us how to do things on our own, um, I somehow always ended up in really good shape. And thanks to my mom sending me to the store. So <laughs> you know, I, All right. um, yeah, it, it's it's so good when um, you know your parents kind of point you in a direction. Uh, you know, I know my parents dropped me off at the at the, at the high school, hmm. and um, you know they, he was like, "Look, um, I see you in, in the Christmas." You know, you get dropped off in September, and I. <laughs> I'll see you in in December, you know, and, um, you know, but that's how I, I meet some, um, going to boarding school and all that, 
you know, you, you develop um, a lot of good friendship and a lot of good memories. And, you know, you started out getting new friends, you know, it's a whole nother set of friends. And um, it, was, it was much, much easier. And I really happy to um, to meet, um, not to grow up around the same friends and for the, the my whole life, you know. So that change was really good, but I was, I hated it. I mean, I wanted to go back home, you know, cause I miss my friends and all the things, but, you know, so let's move along. So who was, who like going back, way back, uh, who was some of the first athletes you heard about um, from the Bahamas or just period in track and field that you might've seen on TV um, in the younger days? So as you, Debbie Ferguson was really huge um, in our country. She had already, by the time I got to Griffith, she had already won two Griffith championships. Um, so she was definitely very popular. And Pauline Davis, um, with my first year, she was the first Bahamian to win a silver medal in the uh, 400 meters. Um, and then uh, you had uh, Frank Rutherford, who was the first Olympic bronze medalist. Um, he was really popular. And um, I think if you, you knew Pauline and you knew Frank, you did it as yeah. a person in the yeah. sport, yeah. even a regular person in the country, those were two names that were synonymous with track and field in our country. Um, they were just always in the press. And it was just interesting because they went to these really interesting places around the world. And it made you see that track and field could not only be something to have fun with, but it also could be this very interesting career as well. Okay, awesome. So what what was at, at first um, interest into the sport? What event did you think you was good at? I was trying to be a sprinter. <laughs> I was trying to be a sprinter. Uh, I, I ran 100 to 200, but I just didn't turn those legs over the way some of the faster guys were. Um, I think 200 was pretty comfortable for me, but like 400 definitely was my event that I was superior to my peers. Um, and so I figured I was stick with that. It just seems like that one came easier. It hurt the most, um, but you know, just something that I just had to focus on. Um, and you know, obviously it worked out in my favor. All right. But I didn't know that I wasn't interested in running the 800. Oh. <laughs> well, you know, before I turn you over to Ian, um, what I wanted to ask you, your first Carifter, that gotta be an experience like you know, um, flying to another country and going over there competing and just hearing about, again, the Jamaica High School Boys Championship is always, you know, it's worldwide known. And knowing that uh, the Jamaicans are coming off like uh, uh, their boys championship, they're in very good shape. Um, what was your um, oh, inspiration that, uh, all that motivate you knowing that, um, you know, you're gonna have to be at your best when you go to the Carifta? Well, you know, one of the things that I realized at that age was that I had this really, I had the ability to zone noise out, meaning distractions. So I was able to focus in my only in my own world. So I, I also knew that the least I knew about the competitors, the better it was for me. I just needed to know who was the fastest and that was it. Um, but I didn't need to know everything. So I just found a way to have that tunnel vision and not focus on anything that anybody else had done prior to. I had a coach who said to me, you are only as good as your last race. And I figured, you know what, this, this is going to be the race that's going to define me. 
And, you know, I could either take advantage of this opportunity or I could just get so caught up in my nerves and just and just lose this opportunity, you know? So I really went out there focused um, and just focused on what I had to do, what I knew my strengths were, and I didn't ex exceed myself beyond what I knew that I had practiced and what I was capable of. And once I stuck to that strategy, I saw when those guys started to die, and I knew that I still had the strength. It's almost like you smell blood. <laughs> you smell blood, and I just went after them, and the next thing I knew, I was leading the race. Um, but it, it made me understand that, you know, if you're fit, you can fight. If you, if you do the things that are necessary to prepare yourself, then the race can become whatever you want it to be if you prepare properly. And that's what I use as my mantra for the rest of my life, is to always be prepared and basically try to do the things that were along the lines of, you know, being a responsible athlete and taking care of my body. Okay, awesome. And we're going to talk a little bit more about um, some of your, um, now that you're retired, you know, you could tell us some of the uh, things that you normally do that, um, you know, that, you know, track and field can get a little bit mental and, you know, a lot of different things, but how you was able to stay focused. So I'm going to hold my thoughts over to you, Ian. All right. Again, I just want to say welcome again, um, Avar. Welcome to the platform. So, before we get way ahead, I really want to get to your culture. And I'm going to ask you to just explain a little bit about the Bahamas culture. But please don't leave out the food, okay? Because there's a question coming up behind that one. <laughs> that's the best part, you know, the food. You know, that's, for me, I wasn't really this huge social person. Um, you know, John Canoe is really one of the um, really huge events that happened. But before John Canoe, we would always have this thing called Gombe Summer. Uh, you had all the various Caribbean music, uh, reggae music, Calypso, all those things. And my mom would always expose me to these things. She would make sure that we always had the opportunity to understand that, yes, there's Bahamian culture, but the Caribbean is almost like one big family and we all have different variations of that we adapt. And so, um, you know, that was really a huge part of my upbringing, just going to these huge events. Um, but, you know, this one thing that in the Caribbean that you just can't get without getting a piece of, which is the cuisine. You know, the conch, peas and rice, or you guys call it rice and peas. And you know, I grew up with those things. Um, and it was it was really, you know, some of the best experiences and food in my life growing up, having access to those cultural uh, diversities. Even going to the various islands like Trinidad, Going to, I've been to Jamaica about six or seven times. I never had curry goat until I went to Jamaica, but rivals Jamaican curry goat since. So, um, you know, just really great food, a sense of family, a sense of camaraderie. People always want to have fun and have a good time, and just you know, coming together and with food and just just enjoying life. And, and alcohol, but I don't drink. <laughs> All right. So why, why I wanted to touch on that is because um, I know Bahamas have a few islands. I won't say a few because there's many islands there, you know, but we have the main one. Um, could you tell us exactly where you're from there in Bahamas? I'm from Nassau. There's about 700 islands of which about 23 are inhabited. 
Uh, that was the, the great question was like, I wonder who went and counted all those islands. <laughs> and there are 700 islands and 23 are inhabited and I'm from the main one, NASA. Um, I have family that are from other islands like Eleuthera and Freeport. I think you guys may have heard of Freeport um, and Abaco. Those are other big islands, whatever, but I'm from the main boy. I'm a city boy in, in the grand scheme of things. All right, Mr. Mancor, what you didn't know is that I've been to Bahamas like on nine trips um, during my nursing program. I uh, would have come over to um, St. Margaret's and Princess Margaret Hospital, the two hospitals. And I also work in one of the mental health facility there, which I really like the program that you guys have there in terms of mental health. But mm -hmm. best part of coming over to Bahamas was fish fry. <laughs> So that's the first place I go when I visit home. I, after I've seen my family, the next step is the fish fry. You know, um, that used to be so small when I lived there. But after a while, like, you know, the diversity of vendors and so forth, um, it, just, it just became a really nice atmosphere. A great food, catch up with people that you hadn't seen in a while. But yeah, that's definitely the spot. Fish fry. All right, so I'm going to put uh, Mancro back over to you, Ian. But Ian, you go to Bahamas. That conch fritters, man, fresh fry, got it. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, um, you know, look, we want to give a shout out to Ali and Pompey. And uh, um, you got another guy here from St. Jago. He competed against you um, at the Carifta, Omar Bailey. Oh. And, uh, <laughs> you know, um, he, yeah, he, yeah, he said he, he, you got him in the 400, but he got you back in the four by four. So, um, um, I don't, you know, we know it's a long time, but, um, Omar, yeah. Billy, who was in my first, he was the Jamaican guy that everyone was talking about in 95. Everyone was like, oh, that's the tough Jamaican guy, watch it for him. So, yeah, he was a great performer. Um, Definitely, uh, you know, he went a really hard, very aggressive runner. Um, but, uh, you know, yeah. it was All a great. Right. All right. So let's just talk about um, just, you know, just summarize your terrific career. Um, um, you know, just just tell us what what you have learned from the Carifter. Um, just after going to the Carifter, how did that have motivate you to, you know, to continue to run and just say, look, uh, I want to be Olympian and uh, at what point in your in your young career that you said you know what I think I could be good at this and I wanted to do it for uh, a long time well actually just going not only just thrift there were so many different levels at the junior level the junior level that you could different competitions you had the Carifta games but you know these same people were also at the junior CAC games and then you had the Pan junior Pan Am games and then the world junior being so these people be that's where the whole Caribbean family became the thing because these were people that you were coming into contact with on a regular basis you were seeing them at all these trips and then you realize that this wasn't just like um, you know just this competitive thing but you know these were people who you established friendships with no matter what event that you went to. So, I mean, that was really the good part, the relationship building that came from attending all these various events. Um, uh, you know, I enjoyed uh, just having fun and competing at the Carifta Games, the World Junior Championships, and also the Pan Am uh, Games. But then I understood that there was another level 
In 96, I actually was on the cusp of making the actual Olympic team, um, but I just figured I just needed a little bit more maturity. Um, and just watching our Golden Girls win medal and just saw all the glory that came along with that, the opportunities that came along with that. Also, at that time, I was hearing about scholarship opportunities. It made me understand that this can be the catalyst to change my life. You know, um, so I really just focused on that aspect of it to get college education and also just to travel the world. I mean, because none of my teammates or none of my, excuse me, none of my schoolmates were going on the summer to Chile or Australia or nothing. Like those were things that I were experiencing as a 15 and 16 year old. So I knew that I was um, going to have opportunities that I would ordinarily had had I done something different. Yes, it's it's definitely um, it's always good as a young teenager or a teenage boy able to travel somewhere. So let's talk about um, the next stage of your career. Um, you know, decided to, you know, you I'm pretty sure you was offered a lot of scholarship, but just tell us about your transition over into the U.S. Um, just, you know, your first year coming over and just trying to. Um, you know, I, I know that um, obviously it's warm in the Bahamas. You know, um, what were the factors that you was concerned about and how prepared you were just coming to another country, you know, um, not going to be able to eat your home cooked meal and all that stuff. <laughs> so my mom told me how to cook. So that was, it was a big issue when I first, because I, I went to Morehouse College for one year. And when I went to the cafeteria, they had like, uh, what you call soul food, Southern cuisine, and they had like fish and chips or something like that. So I'm looking around for the rice and the lentils and everything. Um, and then when it got cold, I realized that it wasn't just like a cold front for the weekend. It was cold for like several months. Um, so it was, I felt a little homesick. Um, it was very uh, difficult adjustment, but I understood that this was for my best. Um, and then I eventually transferred to Auburn University uh, under the uh, tutelage of Coach Ralph Spry and Henry Roll and uh, Coach Rosen, Mel Rosen, who has unfortunately passed away. Uh, rest, in, rest in peace. Um, and basically, you know, I think that's where I started to understand, like, how effective, like, my talent was and how far I could go with this, uh, this sport, simply because all of a sudden I started to be exposed to the right environment and also having the resources available to me, uh, like a good weight room right up the street and everything was in close, uh, close, close to each other for the most part. So it really allowed me to, you know, you know, develop in a way um, that I would not have done had I remained in the Bahamas just because of everything that was available to me. All right, so definitely the Auburn Tigers, and uh, I'm, I got to say that Auburn has a great program. Uh, they they have produced, uh, I believe, so much, so many Olympian, um, yeah, forty six Olympic medalists um, all time from you know from twenty seven different athletes, and um, so you guys have a big history um, of having international athletes winning medals um competing over so obviously we know you know uh, that was a great choice and um obviously the results speak for itself so now you know going to auburn going to a bigger program now you know you got um people on the team that um are you know are, are good just as you 
Um, tell us uh, what were some of the, um, the, 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 the the difference and the challenges that um, you faced um, just, you know, get into your group. Obviously, you won the NCA, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. But how was your, your progression? How was the improvement just going to Auburn? You know, it was like uh, I was an island boy coming to a whole other country. Fortunately, Alabama is kind of really laid back, small country, university town. Um, so there was a lot of distractions. But um, I understood early on that people people were really serious about this. They, they wanted to be a part of that tradition and they wanted to, um, they had their own personal goals. And for me, I hadn't really put into, into focus what I really wanted to do. Those things like going to the Olympics just still seemed so far-fetched for me. Um, and I'd only at the time when I got there ran 46.4. So sounding here and in, in the Bahamas, I think at that time, the fastest time ever by Bahamas was 45. So for those moments, I just didn't know what was possible. And I also was not a very good indoor runner. So, you know, that for the first few months, I had no clue what level of fitness I was at because, you know, I had my challenges running on the indoor circuit. It wasn't until I got outdoor in 1999 that I understood that all that work that I was putting in, all the effort that I was putting in, all the sacrifice that I was putting in, it started to come together. Because in my first outdoor meet, I broke 46 seconds. And for me, that was like the world. I was like, oh, did I just run 45.9? And for me, that felt like 43, you know? Um, so basically, you know, once I saw that happen, I understood that if I discipline myself, if I put the work in, and you know um, that a lot of good things could happen. And I just had a really great coaching staff. That's really key. They were very knowledgeable. Um, they really provided an environment for you to not necessarily have to think about negative things like not having certain things available to you. Um, they just provided everything. And that was something that I hadn't really experienced coming through, I feel like. Because you know, in high school, you purchase everything for yourself. Um, now you're at a point where you have this program that's providing all these things for you um, and it allows you to focus on just doing that, just not focus on trying to figure how things are going to get done. So that worked for me really, really well. The training program was amazing. It was excellent. I had great training partners. All of them, I think, had run uh, probably right around what I'd run or faster. So, you know, each day was just such a competitive environment that it forced you to be bring out your best game every day all right awesome excellent 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 so obviously i'm um, going to auburn was there at what point did you you know i know you said you probably ran a, um, a 45 meter 45 second your first meeting um what do you believe that was a turning point for knowing that look um you know, I could do a whole lot better if I could run so fast or the first in early in the season. Yeah, it was like because uh, it was kind of cool when I did that, and um, it, was, it just kind of made me understand that I always believe because I, I I always understood the concept of periodization and building up to a championship because you know unfortunately I've been exposed to that to some point. 
Um, but it's just like having that consistent program and having the resources available, like going to the training room immediately after practice and having a cold tank to go, just regeneration. Um, you know, those weren't things that I thought about, but those things were so instrumental in my uh, success in terms of just having my body, uh, giving my body the things that it needed to recover so that I could come back the next day and compete at or practice at a really high level. Also, the SEC was such a competitive conference. You know, you, it's like we went to NCAAs, it pretty much was the SEC, you know, versus the Pac-10 kind of thing. Um, so, you know, mentally, you had to get your mind set to very, very high comp competition. At the time, I think we had like guy, Derek Brew, and he was, he's like the top JUCO graduate. So I knew that it wasn't a walk around the park. It was definitely uh, a lot of work that I had to put in if I wanted to compete at that level. All right, awesome. Over to you, Ian. All right, Avard, I just gonna touch a little bit on the family values. And, you know, I know you speak earlier about your mom. Um, could you just um, give a shout out to these two people that was influential in your up growing you know getting to where you are today so really my mom and my grandmother it's like they didn't understand what was going on with that all they knew is that i needed things and they were going to make sure that I had it. in terms of like if i needed to go on a trip or whatever i don't think they understood the magnitude of what track and field would become in my life they just knew that they were going to support me in whatever way that they needed to um, you know, and I don't think that's ever something that was void in my life. Also, like you know, track and field is really a huge expansion the track and field community. You had all these people, once they saw you had the ability to, you know, to do really well, you're like, they supported you. There were many times when I went to the track and didn't know how I was going to get home, but I got home. You know, the, just that community feel. You know, it really does take a village to raise a child. Also, some of the coaches who just um, who went above and beyond to make sure that I got to and from certain workouts and so forth. But you know, my mom always taught me to focus on God, believe in presence in my life, and you know, if I focus on that, then opportunities and and a whole bunch of things would start to unfold in my life. And that's what I did. You know, I was always in church. <laughs> church is a huge part of my upbringing. Um, and, you know, that really allowed me to make that connection between what I was physically doing and the spiritual uh, aspect of, you know, just kind of calling those things into my life as well. Okay. And quickly just want to touch a little bit on the because as we say we're here to educate and inspire um so as a young athlete um uh, were you able to balance your schoolwork along with your um preparation for for your um events or was that going um so that was education was really really important for me i understood that if i yes i was going to uh, compete in track and field but i was also going to get a college degree um my mom did not necessarily, she, she only had a high school level education, but she always told me that I always want you to be bigger or better than what I've done. And so, you know, she really focused on, you know, having education. I've always had pretty strong education 
when um when I was in high school, but when I got to college and it was just only me and I didn't have anyone pushing me, you know, I also understood that the reasoning behind me being there was basically to get an education first. I was a student first and athlete second. So even though it was great that I was being successful as an athlete, equally as important that I made sure that my grades were maintained and that I was able to um, be a very solid student as well. Uh, once again, the school really provided a lot of resources in terms of uh, tutorial services and study hall and all that stuff. So that made it even more easier for me to, uh, you know, really, I guess, channel into that. Okay. Um, could you tell the audience what you majored in and is it something that you're using today? So my major was in business administration and health promotion. Uh, I originally planned to be a physical therapist, but that's not what I'm doing. <laughs> I actually work in education still, and I'm, I'm more of a program coordinator at Georgia Tech, where all of computing there. And um, so, you know, you don't necessarily always end up where you kind of thought you end up, but, you know, I think, um, you know, going into a tracking field career, um and you know think that maybe you could try something different i tried coaching um, that didn't necessarily uh work out for me the way that i was hoping for it really is a demanding career and i wanted something that didn't require as much travel and so the administration port portion of the school worked really well for me because it allowed me to pretty much uh you know pretty much stay put for the most part um, so that's how I got into that aspect of it. Um, the plan is to still um, you know, get into like public health and that kind of stuff. But right now, you know, that's, um, I'm more into the administrative part of education. All right. So uh, listening to you, I think you are one of many athletes that would state that they wanted to get in or become a physiotherapist. I don't know if is this because of the injuries that you guys face and, and uh, it's such a necessary um, career path for you guys as I know a lot of athletes are basically plagued with injuries. Uh, many athletes you'll find an injury is what normally end their career. Could you speak a little into this whether from the injury standpoint? Yes, um, studying exercise physiology and kinesiology and all those things really made me a better athlete. It made me view like training and preparation and recovery so differently, you know, because I was aware of how they correlate in terms of actual performance. Um, but, you know, injuries is a part of the sport. And I guess most athletes want to find a way to minimize that. And I've had my share of all kinds of injuries from stress factors to injuries and so forth. Um, but I've understood how to treat those injuries in the best way that's going to decrease the downtime so that you're able to get back to training and hopefully really high level performances so that would be very helpful with that all right thank you back to you Ian. all right thank you man so we're gonna move along and talk about um your uh collegiate career a little bit more in detail um we know that you actually have won the NCA in 2000, 2001, um, you know, and, you know, that's, um, you know, very, very, very impressive. So let, but let's talk about the year 2000. It was Olympic year. 
you know um you starting out um with, with a bang um so just bring us back um actually before we bring us back um i'm gonna just show you the race <laughs> it could just bring your memory back because <laughs> I, I know it's uh you know i know it's a long time so let's let's just stream that race uh uh, real quick here um, and um, it's not going to have any audio <laughs> yeah let's stream that real quick and uh... all right let's let, let's stick mm-hmm <laughs> This was such an interesting race for me because for me, I didn't believe, I didn't know that I could win it because, you know, you had um, some really great talent in there. And a lot of these guys had run much faster than me earlier in the season. So I had no clue. And I'd never, I hadn't run 44 that year. I, only, I think I praised it like around 44, 99. <laughs> so, you know, that's pretty 45 seconds. Um, so for me, like, I just didn't know what I was going to be capable of. So this race was more of a shock for me and a really huge confidence booster. All right. Awesome. Awesome. So just looking at that race, um, how much you've been in, I believe you was in lane four, how much that you able to see everyone? How, how much, how did that, did that help you in any way? So for me, like, I approach my race as, you know, just I break it down into various phases and I, I I try to execute those phases and not necessarily focus on individuals. You know, I definitely want to get out strong. And of course, when you get out pretty strong, you get to feel who is like getting out really aggressive or who is not getting out fast enough. And but, you know, and understand and and kind of have a, um, a feel of what the pace should be. And at some point, you know that you can't continue to press. You have to, at some point, relax. You know, I, I read uh, Michael Johnson's book, who, when I was in high school, about the various phases that he used. And I had actually adapted those phases, which is press, uh, pace, and then on the turn, you position yourself and then pray. And, um, and the praying part really is, you just hope that you don't die. <laughs> so, I mean, for years, that was really the, the formula that I used, you know? Um, so for me, at this point, um, I'd been in the best shape of my life. I had no clue what the outcome was going to come, what was going to be. A few of those guys are running a little faster than me, but I just knew that if I focused on those phases, as opposed to who did what and who didn't do what, that you know it would probably come together as a really great race the weather was just perfect um my lane placement was perfect so it really allowed me to keep my eyes you know brandon Kaus was always somebody who went out really fast so i knew not to go and chase him um but then um, you just had a couple guys who were pretty leveled also so i definitely tried to you know feel my way through that race but most importantly focus on my plan and just make adjustments as I went through the race. 
Okay, awesome. So 447, um, I believe, uh, again, just probably was 20, 21 years old at the time, <laughs> you know, young and, you know, was able to, 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 to come out victorious. So just going into the race, how confident were you, obviously? Um, I know that, um, yeah, you could talk about it now. Obviously, all of us going to a race to win, but, you know, just the build-up from the semifinal going in, um, how confident were you? you really believe that um, you could, could have won the race before you won it? So the year before, 99, I placed fourth. And I just, when I looked at that race, I was just like, you know, this really is the difference of execution and, you know, also a certain level of fitness, but you're pretty much right there in the front with these guys. You just got to believe in yourself, but also you got to prepare properly. So after, uh, I think, 99, I went into training with a whole different mindset, understanding that, you know, in order to really be with the best, you got to train with a different mindset. You have to train like you are one of the best. And I think all my training partners were like, well, what's going on with you? I just understood that I just had to step it up a little bit. I didn't have to go too crazy. I just need to step it up because I'm not too far off. So when I got in that race, you know, it was more so if you do what you've always been doing, then you get, you know, really different results, you know? So I've been doing this in practice on so many different occasions. So that was just the opportunity for me to just show what I've been preparing for all year. All right. Awesome. Awesome. So, man, I got to say that got to be, um, you know, I know just winning the NCA. Um, so what what where do you um, do with these rings and things now? I know, you know, um, you guys get um, I wasn't fortunate to get uh, a big ring, but I seen some of the rings that some every school gives out like a different rings. So, um, you know, how much you treasure those those rings and, and, and um, how do you, uh, what's a keepsake um, for them now? There was, the, I was hyped because, you know, football players get rings. I was, you could have told me nothing when I got my ring. <laughs> oh, I had my name on it. So that was a whole other thing. It was just like, you know, we love the medals, but it's more the experiences that we live for. Uh, well, me, you know, I live for the experiences. So like those things, eventually you put them away somewhere, you hang them up in your house or whatever. But experiences are the things that I treasure the most, the relationships that I build with the people I were competing against. You know, those are the things that matter to me. But I have a little office, you know, that I kind of hang them in, you know. Um, you know, most of the time it's just me that sees them, but um, at the end of the day, they're just memorabilia of the experience that I had to gain. All right, awesome. So just going to move along. So 2000, any, um, let's talk about, um, you actually won the, the Bahamian title four times in a row, um, you know, which um, at the time um, you uh, was the Bahamian record holder, you know, uh, for a long time and um, obviously, um, that was passed over to Chris. And then now, you know, you got another gentleman, Steve Gardner, that really um, I took it to a whole nother level. But just unrealistically, looking back at it, how fast really you think you could have run? Um, you know, just looking back at some of the things that you think that if you could have done some things different and, um, you know, just, but just between you talking to yourself and, you know, 
realistically um did you feel like you um hit your 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 highest um your highest potential in in, in the sport I don't think so. You know, injuries played a really huge part in that. It was like, you know, just those things hinder things on a whole other level. Uh, once you leave college, you don't necessarily have those resources available to you and they become very costly. Um, but for the most part, I feel like I could have definitely gone faster than 45, excuse me, 44-4. Um, but, you know, I, I tried, I, I just, I'm a grateful and appreciation for the things that did happen. You know, you know, I was able to win a world championship, was able to win two NCAA championships. You know, my coach used to tell me, he was like, you're really just trying to win them. You know, yeah. to run extremely fast or do some time that nobody else has done is really just a gravy. Yeah. But the goal really is to win, win the title. I mean, I, I think for me, you know, running 44 at home, um, I don't know that that inspired somebody, but it allowed Bahamian young boys to see that this was possible because when I grew up, I only knew a 45-2. So now they can see, because I also broke an, our national record on home soil, which was the greatest pleasure for me. I ran 44, I think it was 44-5 at the time or something like that. I can't remember what it was, but um, you know, people were able to see that a Bahamian person that grew up with the same resources and same environment was able to to do this. Um, and I think that's the biggest thing for me. Um, I would have loved to run 43. It looks so easy, <laughs> you know, for how they're doing it these days. Um, it didn't happen. Um, life happens and you just appreciate that it exists in our country. You know, I think for Jamaica and the Bahamas, those times just seemed like a world away. But now multiple Jamaicans that have run sub 44, multiple Bahamians that have run sub 44, and even other Caribbean islands like the Karani James, you know, the Caribbean young males and even the females too, because they're running pretty fast as well. They're seeing that this is possible for their life. And, um, I would have, I've run a few 43 splits, so I believe that maybe it was in there, um, but I don't believe in crying over spilled milk. It's already gone. Uh -huh. I had a great time. Uh -huh. Yeah. I just, I just, I just, I just, I just, just want to throw it on because look, you're retired now. Um, you know, it, you know, it's, um, you know, that sometime, um, you know, we will talk about um, a certain thing. I know for me, I am disappointed with. I am grateful, um, you know, I, when I look back, I know that I could have run much faster, um, you know, than what the book says, you know, but again, you know, I guess you can't do anything now. So, you know, you're, that, that was the best answer there for there. I so me, and this may sound very odd to you, but I think my biggest curiosity of all curiosities is how fast I could have run at 400 meter hurdles. <laughs> that is that is the biggest curiosity I have because I kind of started preparing for it, um, but it's just finding the coaching and everything to kind of kind of help me with that. Um, you know, that wasn't really uh, accessible, but that's been my biggest curiosity because I did start running both events, 400 and 400 hurdles. So I always was curious. Uh, Felix Sanchez was a good friend of mine. And I was just like I had that thought in my mind, like the guy in, in elementary school. I felt like it'd be. I don't. I'm not saying that. I think Felix was an amazing um, athlete. I always was curious if if I would have 
being able to compete at the level that he competed at or yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm quite sure that you will be successful in the herders. Um, it's not that difficult. Um, I mean, in terms of um, you're, you got the height, um, you know, we've seen guys run with Harbor technique. <laughs> <laughs> with, 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 with I, good was, I was one of them guys. I, I had really horrible hurdles. Yeah, yeah. It's always a balance. Felix, Felix was very efficient over the herder. Yeah. Um, and Felix was like a 45 low guy. <laughs> Um, you know, and he probably could have run faster if he focused on the 400. So, uh, yeah, Felix have done um, a lot. I mean, after the 2000 Olympics, Felix pretty much have a, a nice streak going on for himself. Um, you know, it was amazing what Felix does for track and field with his wearing the little wristband with the light. And, you know, at the time, our sport doesn't have any entertainers, you know. We're, you know, at the time, Felix was the first person that started to try to entertain, and he was brave enough, you know, and bold enough to say, you know what, I'm gonna wear this band, and I'm not taking it off until I lost another race, you mm -hmm. know. Um, and I, I'm gonna talk to him about that eventually because I think it's one of the great stories of track and field, um, you know. So. Um, I know I skip ahead a little bit, but I just want to ask you about how different was you to def to, to um, defend your NCAA championship? I know that um, that got to bring some pressure, knowing that man, I win it the year before and I want to win it again. How did you was able to, to to pull that through? I mean, but you know, coming back and win um, back to back championship. I think for me, it was just I was just a little bit more mature. I had been to the Olympics, which is the peak of any track and field person's career is like when I stepped out on the Olympic stage, like I was thinking he would Michael Johnson, you know, it's just like I, you know, did Gregory Harden. I was just like, I think was in one of my heats too. So it was just like, once you've competed against those people, um, you just have a different mindset when you go back to the collegiate circus. So for me, I just had a different mindset, different confidence. But I, I, I would definitely say another huge part of that was the Olympics was extremely late that year. It was in September. So when I actually got into training, off-season training, my fitness level was very significant. Like you're talking about running 44 seconds in September, meaning, and then of course, you know, the season starts in January. So you really didn't have to do too much preparation. So that really benefited me in a different way. It w there were struggles that people go through with off-season training. That was never an issue during that year. Um, so a lot of things just came pretty easy. Uh, you know, they say you, you, you train, you say you condition to train and you train to compete. So mm -hmm. the training already happened. I was just training to compete. So I was just focused on that part. And obviously when you're that fit, you know, you can take your workout levels to a whole nother place. So confidence was definitely high. My mindset was in a different place because he went against Michael Johnson. <laughs> so, you know, I have this picture of me and Michael Johnson and I'm just like, hey, I mean, if you ran against him, who else in the world to be concerned about, you know? But the biggest thing for me was I got dipped out at the finish line um, in Sydney, meaning I barely made the Olympic final. That was a changing point in my life because I was like, I shouldn't be watching this race. I really have the ability to be in that final as well. 
So it made me just to take training to a different place. It made me take my mindset to a different place. And competition just became something very different for me because I was confident in a way that I hadn't been ever. Yeah. Well, that's awesome, man. This, what I'm, what I'm about to say now, this is probably um, just looking at what you have um, done, duplicated in 2001. It seemed like you have got some unfinished business from the year 2000. You know, knowing that you won the NCA and you made it to the Olympics and you barely, you know, missed the final. You actually come back in 2001, won the NCA, but this time you went ahead and win the world championship. Yeah. Now, wow, um, that got to be um, such an inspiration. And how did you, what was your driving force? How, you know, what did you done differently? knowing that you step up the game in 2001, because you kind of run against the same people uh, that was in the Olympics, um, you know, except um, I believe Michael Johnson now have retired, <laughs> you know, because um, I think at the time you was pretty much a young athlete and was on the way of, you know, people start to say this might could have been the next person um, to, to move in that direction, to, to, dom to dominate the event. So tell us about um, some of some of what you have done different from 2000 to 2001 in terms of, you know, won the NCA and then coming back to win the world championship um, in Edmonton. I call it the perfect the, the perfect year. It was like everything really just flowed. And I like I said earlier, I think it really came from the fact that the Olympic Games were so late and the off-season preparation really could go to a next level. Um, I think, you know, so, like some of the workers that we do in the off-season that I struggle with the prior year, they were so easy. And as a matter of fact, I feel like my coach had to pull me back a few times and just kind of prepare me differently because the where my fitness was. Um, but, um, you know, confidence, mindset, also missing an opportunity of being able to make it to the Olympic finals, all those kind of um, coalesced into just having the desire to not sell myself short and miss an opportunity that may never come again. Um, I had not gotten beaten at all that year on the collegiate level, um, but you know, I understood that I was kind of go up against some big dogs and I just had to really focus on believing myself and understand that, you know, I deserve this because I put the work in um, and it just worked out perfectly. It worked out perfectly. But I think in Oregon, when we had the NCAA championship, I think that's when I understood that, you know, I was in amazing shape because there was so much wind on the back stretch and it was very cold and rainy. Um, and so most of the people in that race ran 45 seconds, you know, but I was the only one that ran 44 seconds. And that's when I understood that I was in really, really good shape. All right, awesome. So we, we got a lot that we could talk about now um, in terms of, the, um, we got to talk about the world, your, your highlight of your career, one of the biggest accomplishments. Um, for the record, I mean, there might be other things that, you know, and you could let us know. But in your books, um, was the Edmonton race um, 
your best race um, that you ran or, you know, the most rewarding race. Um, what's your take on the World Championship final? How, did you think you run the perfect race? No, I didn't. You know, I, I don't... It, this was one of those races where I didn't feel. I felt like if I if the if the first round and obviously it was if the first round was the final, I think I would have ran extremely fast. My body just felt amazing. The track was really really fast, um, you know. But you know, obviously you have to shut down and basically kind of conserve your energy. Um, that round is like I think I accidentally and in my opinion I people say how do you accidentally run 44.8 but it's like that was not my intention my intention was to run 45 seconds I saw I ran 40, 44.8 um, so I think I always wonder if I just ran through the line with that one particular race I wonder what it could have become um, but that made me understand that I was really really fit you know a lot of things came with really good ease and I had a lot of confidence going into the actual final Okay, that's awesome. Um, so that got to be um, definitely put to you as the number one ranked athlete um, in 2001. And uh, how how did you... Nervous about Der uh, um, Gregory Hawking. Michael Johnson was in there, but his training partner was. Yeah. <laughs> he, he was yeah. ahead of me, so I was a little nervous. I know, uh, and, and we probably could show that race. I know that since Gregory was coming off of... Um, a medal in the Olympics, and Michael Johnson have retired, and um, you know it was it, you know their eyes probably was um, on Gregory. I I was in Edmonton also running um, at the time. I I watched the race, um, you know, uh, and um, you know it it was a well deserved win because when you look back at the race, um, guy from Germany took second. <laughs> Yeah. And, and um you look at the time yeah you know it was it was it wasn't like uh 43 seconds but the michael johnson was away and just for the next generation of 400 meter runner that was coming up and um and such at a young age at age 22 you i was in the prime of um for great things you know go, going forward so uh i i believe that so the, the next question, obviously, with that, um, you how did you um, how did you get um, welcome from from the Bahamian uh, from your country? Just going back home, what was that feeling like? Knowing that you know the girls have been doing the thing for many years, and they just have the thing from Sydney, and you know now you know on the male side now you kind of step up the game. I know there probably was you know it hasn't been anyone in a while. So how, how, how did that make you feel and how did they welcome you back home? So I had experienced what they had experienced uh, because, you know, when they, they didn't just bring the girls home, they brought the entire team home. So it was just huge celebration. So I was like, really, I, I, I think I had prepared for it in my mind that it was probably going to be something special. Because this was an uh, individual medal. I mean, excuse me, this wasn't a relay medal. It was an actual individual medal. So. Um, that hadn't happened in a while since uh, Troy Camp in the high jump. So, you know, we really try to celebrate our athletes and really make them feel, you know, like their accomplishment is worthwhile. Um, and that's exactly how I felt. I felt like they really made me understand that this was really historic for our country. Um, and they wanted to, you know, expose me to the high schools and the community as a whole so that people will know that 
you know, this is one of us. This isn't just some random person. This is a person that lives in our community. And, you know, I want you to meet him and everyone else. I think we got a relay medal and Debbie Ferguson got a medal. So, you know, um, it was good to share that attention with them. Yeah, okay, definitely, definitely. Well, I just want to say um, additionally before we, we go over to Ian that, um, you know, what was, uh, how did you celebrate that victory knowing that, um, you know, I know you probably did not, I don't know if you celebrate after the race. I know that, um, you know, I I don't know what I would do with myself winning the World Championship uh, title, but how did you celebrate that, that big, big, big success? It was, for me, it took a little while to understand because I watched it every year from high school until actually I was physically competing in it. It was like, I just felt like disbelief. I was just like, I didn't understand that I had accomplished this. But once I got home and I saw everything, it was just good to kind of, you know, just go spend some time with the people that um, really help and make that happen. Like the my Diana Thompson, the lady who drove us around when I was a kid in her little Nissan Sunny and let her know that I appreciate her. But it's just spending time with my mom and letting her know that her sacrifice really caused this to happen. You know, so the people and my grandmother, just spending time with them and celebrating with them. Neither one of them drank. So it was just like, you know, just more so bringing them on a vacation and just like spending some personal time with them and really enjoying the success of them because at the end of the day if it wasn't for them I, there would be no me they made a lot of sacrifice for that to happen okay awesome and we know how difficult it is to stay on the top being a world champion that got to be now let you going to be the target um for the following year you know um how how did how, how did you feel being a world champion did you feel like um you got to now, uh, you can't let people down going forward. How did you deal with the, what the, 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 the limelight that comes with it? It was different because uh, I think when I went into the championships, it was like, in my mind, I wasn't a target. I felt like Gregory Horton was the, was the target, you know? <laughs> and all of a sudden, it's like I show up in a meeting and people are looking at me as the target. So that was unusual. Um, you know, uh, you know, I think around that time, I also started to get like these injuries. I got a stress fracture in 2002, um, but just the mental part of it, where it just became a really like up and down type thing. Um, but it kind of builds you in a way that you don't think that it would. Uh, and when you come into real life, like it's your mental strength, your perspective on you know, the things that you should be grateful for. I feel like um, you know, I didn't enjoy being the target, but at the same time, it caused me to really try to take care of my body in a different way. Um, I eventually ended up leaving Auburn and I realized that you know, it was a really strong program, um, but there were some things that I thought, okay, I could get elsewhere. Um, it didn't necessarily work out, you know, um, it, it didn't work out. I still got more injuries. And every now and then I would actually, um, you know, just get a get in a really good groove and able to compete at a high level. But that made me evaluate that not everything is not greener on the other side. Sometimes you just have to appreciate the things that uh, where you had success, what how that worked for you and why that worked for you. And not every program is going to be in your favor. 
So basically, if you were supposed to do it over again, would you say that you probably would have uh, continued to stay at Auburn and train or you would probably do the same thing again? I don't know. I mean, there was, there's very specific reasons for me making that decision. I thought um, another opportunity would kind of take me to another level. Um, but also I wanted to, uh, Auburn is a university town. I was a very young person and I wanted to see the world and, and just live life a little bit. And, you know, I, I, I don't regret moving. I think um, I, I just realized that all in the community, even though the Olympics was in the Atlanta area, they didn't necessarily have the support that I was hoping for, like finding facilities, you know, have a consistent practice place and stuff like that. A lot of those things weren't readily available. Um, but in terms of like the relationships that I've built in the area and so forth, um, I don't regret those because those things wouldn't happen if I had stayed at But I do feel like, you know, I, I still say today, because Bry and because Rosen are definitely two of the best quarter mile coaches out there other next to like Clive Hart. Um, that's that's arguable. Everyone would say something different, but I just felt like I worked. They worked really well for me. And I was going to put you over the end, but since you brought up coach name, just tell us what's the best advice that you received from uh, Coach Spry, just your college coach. Um, I definitely, it's uh, just more so, he always used this term. It's just like, you know, you don't need to overthink it. You know, once you've put the work in, you know, it, and, and you have to be very honest with yourself. You have to know that you are giving 100% to whether it's a small effort or a large effort, you have to basically 100% honest with yourself. And once you put the work in, he always used this term, once the hay is in the in the barn, you just gotta keep it fresh. You know what I'm saying, for the most part. So you put the work in, you execute, you get your mind right, then you just gotta do what you need to do to maintain that and just believe that you have the ability to compete at a really high level. Um, and then it's possible. You know, you don't, people make it seem like you have to do very special, specific things. Preparation, you just have to prepare and prepare properly. Um, one of the things that he did was really keep a drama-free environment. So you really were able to focus on training. Um, you know, if something was going on external of the track, he really found great ways to, you know, minimize that so that you can focus on what you're supposed to be doing at the time. All right, over to you, Ian. Yes, Avard, um, one of my questions was going to be, um, as a young athlete um, coming through the system, um, did you believe that you had enough support or there was much more that could have been done? You know, if you could speak a little bit more into that. Uh, definitely. Well, as a young person, the sport definitely came from my family. Um, the Bahamian government definitely was really a huge part of they had an athlete development program around the time that I was coming out. Um, and that definitely was extremely helpful. Um, but I can say that once I got into the university environment and, you know, it's, you know, they can provide opportunities, but there's certain things that can be very limiting that they don't really have direct control over, like having a training room, qualified trainers that have accreditations, uh, making sure you have a really great work, weight room workout. 
all that was just in one place. And once you get that type of support and get those type of like the kind of people that have the knowledge to guide you, I think it really changes changes the person in a whole other way. Especially somebody who is able to teach you. Like it's just one thing to train somebody, but it's also somebody who's going to be able to teach you to do properly and understand why you're doing what you're doing. Like it's so easy to just say go do this, go do this, go do that, but you don't really understand why you're doing it. And I think coming up through my track and field career, I had coaches that basically taught me, which caused me to change behaviors that allowed me to be able to utilize my training to grow in an efficient way. Okay. Um, regarding the whole athletics, um, I don't know how it's run, if it's a federation or what, but if you are given the opportunity to change anything within that, to probably make the playing field level, uh, is there anything that you would, would wish to change for the athletes that's coming up? Oh, that's a tough question. <laughs> you know, because everyone is different. Everyone comes from different environment uh, but I uh, I just feel like um, you know the Bahamas is definitely moving in a very positive direction in terms of now we have like a state of the art stadium I never had to, like the stadium that we have it would have been amazing to be able to compete in that or whatever and I think they're really building uh, they have way more than what I had going up so I can't make any recommendations because they really are moving it in a positive direction now in terms of having the world relays in the Bahamas and having your young people exposed to the level of talents. That, I mean, you get to see Usain Bolt in your country compete, you know, or Asafa Powell or, you know, Shanae Williams or Steven Gardner. You know, I didn't have access to those. I basically uh, had to go by the news. They were talking about people throughout the world and what they were doing. So I think we're definitely moving in a good direction in terms of exposing our athletes to, um, you know, levels that, you know, makes them view this thing differently, understanding that you can, you can do this if you just put yourself in the right situation in the right, right environment. Um, I think kids have access to a lot more like the social media and all that stuff. Um, sometimes I, I would recommend pulling back from some of that stuff because sometimes I feel like they could be more of a distraction. Everyone's trying to be a star. <laughs> so um, that would probably be the recommendation to do. Um, but, you know, obviously that's helpful in other regards. So, All right. Um, as professional athletes, we know that you guys have to put in a lot of work. And I know sometimes even with training, it may, you know, money coming from your own pocket too. And it all depends. Uh, and and the level of, uh, of professionalism that you want to get in terms of your team. But do you believe that professional athletes are paid enough based on the work that they have to put in, in comparison to the other sports? I'm so glad you asked that question. <laughs> because I was looking at the prize money in 2001 and then looking at the prize money at the 2019 uh, championships and if I was looking at the right document, it, it's the same. I think that needs to change. It's like, you know, when you work on a regular job, they increase salary based on cost of living, especially if you're in a really uh, densely populated area. Like, for example, I'm in Atlanta. Um, so it just blew my mind that the pot was still 
as low as it was. Um, I was hoping that maybe that had gotten to a point. I mean, we were talking about 20 years ago where it would be a little bit more significant. I mean, uh, you know, those things can really make a difference in athletes' life, especially if you win it. You win a Super Bowl or any NBA championship. I mean, of course, those are fan-based sports, but you're multiple, you can really lead a different life. Um, track and field, even though some of the contracts are really more significant than it was when I first started, I just feel like there could be more. There could be a lot more that, um, in terms of sponsorship, and I know those are improving, but the actual championship, I feel like I could definitely um, improve in a very significant way. I mean, like somebody may only win a championship once. Um, they may never have that opportunity again. So that was a shock to me because I just wanted to see, just out of curiosity in 2019, what it was, because I know what it was when I did it. Um, and um, I was shocked that it was still the same. Yeah, that leads me to another question. So, and that is, uh, since it's not the money, it seems like in terms of athletics, uh, what would you say would have motivated you to do your best, you know, in terms of your competition? What um, motivates you? What motivates me? Um, I think for me, I understood that doing well really created opportunities. You know, to be visible, to have like support sponsorship or even support from your country or stuff like that. Um, that was really the driving force to free education. Um, a lot of a lot of people who went through undergrad who have like really high college debt. I worked in admissions, so I know that people incur very significant debt. Um, for me, I understood that this was really a chance to change my life. So. That was the main motivation for me, but also the things that I was going to be exposed to, like being in Chile, being in uh, Greece, these things that, and I don't, I, I didn't have to pay much to do these things. Um, those were the things that kept me motivated and intrigued to be able to live a lifestyle um, that I've dreamed about, but not necessarily have to, you know, put a lot of my own personal resources into it. Great. All right. So, with all your accomplishments, you know, you know, you 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 definitely speak highly, you know, of your country, and you're someone I see that is well motivated, you know, encouraged. You don't seem like you take much to do that because you're you're a bit motivated from within. Yes. But after I'm competing and bringing Bahamas so much medals, uh, would you tell us how they have received you there? You know, I know you're an icon in your <laughs> in, a, in your work, but could you just tell us how the um, Bahamian public have received you? You know, Bahamians really are people. Um, they 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 know their stars and stuff like that, but they really um, they, they don't get like most Caribbean people. They're like, oh, okay, well that's Michael Jackson or whatever, and they they love him or whatever, but. I feel so like I do feel accomplished when I go home when people recognize me and you know they when people say to me you know I just want to thank you for doing this because it did whatever it did for my life or it did for something for my child or something like that um, you know that is inspiration for me simply because I understand that you know sometimes just like you know like when you like you watching an election or you watching a game you know so many so many people their emotional state their desire 
their willingness, a lot of them are attached to you know, these things being successful. So to hear that anything that I've done in my life that was good caused anyone to you know get something positive is definitely you know a big deal for me. Uh, and Bahamians instantly have said that to me. They've never let me forget you know what I did, whether I did it 20 years ago, last year, recently. I think they they know more of that stuff than I do. They're very worried. And the Caribbean, you know, not we've had a lot of success, but we've had like this whole bunch. I think we really hold on to the things that we've accomplished because we know what we had to face in order to accomplish those things. I mean, and only now that I think athletes stay home and train and are now world champions. Like you seen um Shelly Ann Fraser and you know Shanae, I think she trained home a little bit as well. Those are big deals, you know. Um, so I love my country. I love the people there. They just have a vibe about them um, that's just like unmatched. The Caribbean people and also people in the Bahamas. And you know, I just love it. All right. Uh, final question for this segment is, you know, Bahamas basically I've given to you as I see a lot. Uh, what is it that you're giving back now, or is it there's something that you're working on? Because I know Ian is ready to jump on board, you know, helping. And if you have a project that you're going to be working on in ways that we could help you, um, you could say if you have something going on currently, or is there something that you're working on in terms of giving back, probably just to the athletes or just to the country and a whole. So, I mean, I, I did coach a little bit. Um, I coached one of the Bahamian athletes. He was the 2013 Carifta champion at 200 meters. Uh, that was extremely rewarding and because the Carifta was actually held in the Bahamas. Um, and, you know, also I was able to recruit for my university in the Bahamas um, when I was at the previous school. I don't do much recruiting now, but my thing is more so to really and like whenever i get the opportunity i don't have any foundations or anything but like any opportunity i get to tell kids about my personal experience and how they can make different choices in order to enhance their life and their own personal experiences i always try to share that because i understand that um you know if you can like they say a person who goes into the wilderness and comes back and says nothing has failed his people. So it is very important that, you know, those experiences that I've had from going into the wilderness, I come back and I share it with athletes. I do it more interpersonally, um, nothing to, you know, can pretty brag about, but I've seen people's lives change based on advice that I've given them. So that's, that's how I focus on it. All right. Thank you for the accomplishment. Thank you for the service to your countrymen. Uh, I'll just pass you right back over to Ian. Thank you. All right, man. Thank you so much. Um, got um, one, since you were talking about your country, um, I know that um, one thing that I have um, read about, um, you are pretty much an icon. You was uh, awarded uh, or put in place this, um, on the stamp, on the national stamp. Uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure you're getting some of the preceded. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I'm talking about <laughs> how did that make you feel with, with seeing that, um, you know, you are on the, uh, the uh, mail, a stamp when you see a picture on there, you know, that got to be put you in some special place, um, some other people in the history of Bahamas, because you basically 
is a historian. You you're part of the history of um, Bahamas right now. At the time when it happened, I was 22, and it was like, you know, whoa, I want, I want to stand. It was kind of like very surreal. Um, but now that I'm older and I look at it, it kind of is like this reflection of, you know, people, they don't just put anyone on a stamp. You must have done something very significant. So it's a part of my legacy, you know, for my, uh, I don't have any kids yet, but it's like I have nieces and nephews or whatever. And, you know, it's always something that can be referred back to, to understand that someone in our family was able to do something significant that the government made a decision to put them on a stamp. It was such an ego boost. That's the big, <laughs> that's the that was on. It was such an ego. I, I, I just was really about it, you know, you know I, I, a lot of countries done things, um, you know, like statues. Um, I know they're doing that in Jamaica right now. Um, there has a national hero spark in Jamaica. They have, um, you know, a give people order of distinction behind the name and turn people into diplomats and, and things like that. Um, personally, um, just for what you have accomplished, um, did did um, in terms of being a, a diplomat or, you know, were you recognizing that in, in any way like that? No, I never got the diplomat status, but I'm open to it. <laughs> um, you know, the good thing about uh, our is like, you know, I think we had so much success after 2000. It was just like we had like, like you had the 92 Olympics and then you had the 96 Olympics. And then, you know, then after that, it just seems like a whole bunch of athletes just came up that were doing pretty, pretty well. Um, I think we, we pretty much keep you keep you humble and just you know we got any diplomatic status but i mean the treatment that you get once you walk through an airport is so amazing so i think they do whatever they can to make us understand that we are definitely special all right so i'm gonna come back to a little bit about um you um this is just some question that from me um <laughs> i know i'm actually but i'm always i want to talk about workouts and um, i wanted to in your career what was one of your favorite workout that um, you know that makes you feel like you're you're ready to go and you feel good about yourself that you're in great shape so we did this is i, I think workout was either you loved it or you hated it, but we did like there's this, uh, i did like just repeat 400 like where you would do three with like a minute rest and basically you had to, it's almost like you run 800 meter pace but if you can get and we kind of do it times two if you can get like 52 52 and then how somehow drop off to like 53 54 that means you are ready to run really really fast because of obviously your recovery between that short uh short uh, a short time is very significant and that means you are really wired to uh really deal with lactate buildup and so forth really well um but that was a workout that extremely challenging um, and I would have to do that times two, but I understood when I was able to perform it at that level that I was definitely ready to go to rock and roll. All right. So with all the countries, all the frequent flyer miles, all the places you go, um, where's one place that you just always like to go, um, you know, not other than the Bahamas and the US, just over 
into Europe or in a place that you like to run? My favorite place was Switzerland, Lausanne. That was such a huge meet. It was like it was like I felt like a real celebrity at that meet. <laughs> oh, like the, the the European population was so knowledgeable. The accommodations was amazing. Uh, the food was great, and of course the track was fast. So you you ran well there. So you just had this complete experience there. To run well, treated well, uh, feel well, and then the scenes were amazing. Um, but I mean, I, I can't choose a few because I have quite a few, but Switzerland stands out in my mind because it was such a high level meet. I never got to go to Zurich. I think that's the spot that I would have wanted to visit. Um, but the Lausanne meet was definitely my favorite one of all. Um, but I always tell people if Australia wasn't so far, I would probably go there on my own without competition. But you know, that's the two days of traveling. <laughs> all right, all right. And I would like to give you the segment. Can you just tell us a little bit about some of your teammates um, in college? Um, I know we talk about the college, but I noticed I, I didn't get, um, you know, uh, we talk about, um, just give a shout out to call a couple of your teammates that you were um, in run running alongside while you was in college. So I used the, the, my training my training partners because uh, they were, a lot of them were from Caribbean, Jamaica. <laughs> I feel oh. like, I felt like a Jamaican at one point. <laughs> so you had like uh, Davian Clark, uh, Michael McDonald, Sanjay Ear, um, and you know just a couple. Uh, Mary Tim Green, um, you know Julius Edwards. These were people that were extremely talented, and they made they made me work for it every time I came out there to to practice. Um, you know, obviously Sanjay was part of that uh, 2000 Olympic team as well as Davian. And I think Davian was also the 96, I think was he a 96 uh, 4x4 as well? Yeah. Um, and then of course, Michael McDonald. Who in 2001, we felt like it was either gonna be him as the champion or me, you know, cause he was in really, really great shape. Um, he was definitely a tough competitor. At one point, my coach had to separate us because he was just like, you know what? I don't want y'all to be competing against each other. I really want y'all to focus on the workout. But that year, um, I think, you know, just having him around just took my training to a whole other level, you know? So once again, you had that Caribbean family um, who we were pushing each other. We understood that this was very big for our region. And, you know, if we took advantage of this opportunity and push each other to the next level, that we could bring attention and success for that region as well. All right. Awesome, man. So you want to talk a little bit about, um, so when did you officially retire and how difficult was that for you? I retired in 2013 after 2012 was definitely going to be my last Olympics. I was 34 and um, I knew that, you know, that was probably the last um, There was, the injuries were just were too frequent um and also uh i think at that point the you know i didn't have a sponsor at the time um, and i also wanted to start another part of my life i think a lot of athletes don't understand that after this is another way of living there's like whether you choose to be in the corporate world or you just choose to be a, a business owner of your own there's a whole other life that you have to prepare for so I definitely wanted to begin the process of moving into, you know, a more professional world. Um, so 2013, I made the decision to hang my spikes up and start to focus on developing that. 
Okay. And I know that um, we have talked about you doing a little bit of coaching. So mm -hmm. just tell us, real, um, what did you learn from coaching about yourself? I mean, you know, uh, just you being a coach, what did you learn anything or what, what was your uh, thoughts of being a coach? Uh, what's your input in that? Patience. I have a big ego, <laughs> you know, because, you know, because I'm humble in the sport, but it's like when you understand what it takes to do some of the things that you've done um, and you see somebody who is talented, not necessarily embracing those mind, that, that thought process, it becomes very, very frustrating. Um, but at the same time, you understand that coaching is also teacher and teacher is to uh, create a mindset to change the behavior of somebody and allow it to become something that's going to be beneficial to them. That takes a lot of time, a lot of energy, um, and it was really, really enjoyable. And when I saw one of my, my actions become successful, it was the most, it was more thrilling than winning, you know, because now you lose control of what happens. When you're an athlete, you can control it a little bit. But then when you have to kind of pass it on to someone else, you realize that it's really up to them. And you hope that everything that you've taught them, you know, they actually translate that into a great performance. So it was thrilling. Um, but at the same time, um, I knew that it was something that I was an extremely passionate about. Um, and I definitely wanted to make sure the people uh, who wanted to pursue that, they had access to a person who was equally as passionate about that and uh, was willing to be there on every level to support them in that regard. Well, I hope that you, you consider doing some form of mentorship or, you know, because I really believe that you're very knowledgeable and very talented and, you know, very um, inspirational in, in, in your success. And I, I know that just sharing your story, uh, that could help, um, you know, some kid back to home or, on a professional level, um, you know, mentoring is also, um, it's on a little different level than the coaching because it's just more like, um, just, you know, just, just kind of, you know, give them advice of things that can help them to, uh, to achieve what they're trying to achieve. So I'm going to touch a little bit about, your, um, you touch a little bit about, um, your mom. I'm going to ask you pretty much. Uh, in terms of advice, what was some? Of, what's one of the best advice? Or I know that um, you know. Well, let's take it like this. What's the best advice you have received? You know, from from your mom. Um, she, she, her, her, she, my mom was very extremely spiritual, and her focus was always to understand where opportunities where success where talent where all these things came from and it was always to remain grounded and understand that just as quickly as something can be given to you is as quickly as it can be taken away from you um and that's something that i you know, carry through my life to really appreciate the things and the moments that i had um and not you know a lot of times we want like we talked about earlier we would hope that it could be different or it could be better. But uh, and then thinking track and field, we always feel like, oh, if this did happen and we don't really get a chance to focus on the success that we do have. Even if you come off the track and you just win the world championship, which I saw a lot when I was watching the 2019, it was like, what are you gonna do next year? You don't really get a chance to 
to enjoy and savor the moment that you're actually in. And that's one of the things that she always taught me to stop for a minute and savor the hard work that you've already put in to get you to the point where you were able to be successful now. Because a lot of times we can get so focused on what's next that we don't really get a chance to appreciate where we are in the moment. So, um, and, and that also goes like, you know, with spending time with somebody, you know, and it's just like, we all oh, do it next time or something like that. Just enjoy the moment, live in the moment, live in the present, because that really is the only portion of our life that we really have control over the moment that we're very presently in. Okay. Um, so just going to ask you another question, one more question in regarding to, to your mom. I know that, um, you know, I know that um, this year has been a, a tough year for you, um, you know, that um, your mom is no longer with us. And um, so how are, how are you doing um, dealing with loss of her? You know, it's, it's one of those things, you know, you physically go there, you, you go to the funeral, you, you see the actual person. Um, but, you know, this person who is literally there for all the years that you've known life and been your support for all those years, um, it's just this, this the thought of not being able to ever speak to them again. Um, it's still the hardest thing that I will ever deal with in in, in for forever, you know. Uh, straight face, hold on. Well, you know, um, yeah. what I do focus on is like you know, everything that she's taught me, all the experiences that we've had. I find myself laughing at the jokes that she left. Um, I have a lot of voice notes from her, um, and I refer to those a lot. And I focus on those things because my mom, what she, the opportunities that were not afforded to her, she still made herself mom of the year in my book for many, many years. She never, I, I didn't, I never knew I was broke. I never knew I didn't have money. I never wanted things that most people had. She just made sure whatever I needed to be successful. From money to go on trips, support, you know, she worked in the evening, so she never could like pick me up and take me from practice, but she just made sure that I never uh, had to need anything. Um, and I will always be grateful for that because, um, you know, those things were life-changing. Well, I'm thank you for sharing that with us. Um, as I said, my um, sincere condolences, condolences to you, and um, I just um, want to encourage you to, you know, to stay uh, strong and, you know, you know, continue to, you just know. That is just like you know, we are still currently in the middle of a pandemic. Um, just to, to leave a message to people who may be listening, it's just like you know. It sometimes isn't really just about you. You know, you may be fine because of a really large population of people that experience this disease recover from it fully. But you have that person who has, you know, underlying conditions. They are the ones that are going to suffer the most and possibly lose their life. So as a community, I feel like we need to not focus on 
the fact that something may be minimally affecting us, but also about how it may be affecting the community as a whole, the people who may not be able to deal with some of the stresses that your body may be able to deal with. Um, because that was really one of the issues that we had. My mom was a diabetic and, you know, she had her challenges with that. Um, and other people in my household, they came into contact with that, but she was the one that, you know, didn't have a very favorable outcome. So, and that really is the concept that the, you know, the health professionals are trying to push out. Just like, no, you probably will be fine. But is your grandmother, is your aunt, is your older relative that is probably going to have the deadly effects of it. Um, and I think um, that's what people need to focus on. I understand we want to have fun and live life and get back to normal. But in order to get back to that sense of normalcy, we have to do it collectively. And I'm gonna let Ian, um, if Ian have anything to say um, about, um, you know, um, what you've experienced. I know that, um, um, any thoughts, Ian? Well, I just wanna say, um, this is basically the toughest um, period in my life personally, so I may be able to associate with what leading up to the loss of a parent because, I would have been there back in America now just chilling with my kids and my wife if everything was well. Um, it's a pandemic year, but then my mom been sick for the past three months. You know, it's just doctor to doctor. And, you know, when you're not there, you're not the doctor. You're not the nurse for her or anything. And you just see what is happening. You see, like, you're actually looking and seeing, man, this is reality. You know, you know that someday you're your parent may pass away, you know, and leave you. Because, you know, say one thing that is guaranteed is that death. We, we, we should die at some point. But when I do see it facing you, like, you know, my mom is, is you, know, you realize that, well, it is here. Because we, we've been busy all these years doing our own thing sometimes. Then, you know, I start looking back. Man, I could have spent a little bit more time with her. Amen. Hey, the time I was doing this, I could with her and it's like you start going back and you have those memories of her you know as i've already said those little voice messages you remember those are the time ian where are you now you know it's time for you to come home you know they're always looking out for you all their years and it's now this point where you gotta be the real man because all the years you're you're just a child for mommy you're never you're never you never grow up i, I tell you after this day you know, and that's the very reason why I'm over here in Jamaica. And you know, if you see, you know, if I was back in America, I'd have a nice little background. I just grab a sheet, I throw it up, because you know, I'm really here and I'm telling you, Avard, I've been crying for three months, basically. People still see you, uh, they think that all is well, but they don't see you when the door is closed. They don't see you when you get under the under the sheet, you know. They don't see you when, when you're not sleeping. They don't see you when you're not eating. But they may hear a voice and you sound strong, you look good and everything. But I just want to say to those people that this is real. And, you know, if you have your mother out there, your father, your auntie, your uncle, this is the time to just really show love. Because then, you know, leading up to, you know, Ill illness. You know, I work as a nurse and I've taken care of people, family member. And this is one thing I always treat them like it's my mother. But when reality comes, I'm telling you, it, it, it is it's not easy to deal with as much as you may be encouraged as much as you feel like you know you you're, you got your life together i can tell you man this thing will shake you up totally 
And, you know, my life for the last couple of months, you know, I, I would say leading up, I would say I was having the best time of my life. I had two two kids, one three-year-old, one one-year-old, and a wife, and things just looked so, so fun, you know. Uh, my parents, I know they were waiting on our, their grandkids from us, and to see it happen, and then now to see my mother battling with health issues, it is just a tough place to be, man, you know. It, it is not easy, so I, I can associate with the part leading up to this. And it, it is a challenge, and no matter how strong you are as as, as, as a man, as you know, as men, we, we should be strong. So no matter how strong you are, you're gonna break down, man. You're gonna that, that point is gonna come where you're gonna have tears running. You don't even know how to console those tears. And I'm just telling you, that's that's what's happening. Sleepless night. I'm here and I can't shut down. It's like I'm in America, I can't shut down. I'm just thinking, what's next? I'm calling mom. You okay? It's like you wanna hear her voice. But then when you hear her voice, you know she's not well. You know, that's not mommy. You know, something is going on. And, you know, and I tell you, I had to come home, you know, despite the pandemic and everything, I had to leave my wife, my kids. And that's a tough thing to do also, just to be here for her, you know, just being an advocate on the ground. And I'm just telling you tomorrow, I'm going into Kingston with her again. And it's just like a, up and we've been to the hospital. And as I say, look here, I'm in it. But it, 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 it's not what I want it to be. I think there's still a lot of gaps, a lot of loophole. I think it's all about the money. You know, one doctor pass you to another, another referral here, there. And nobody seems to be really targeting the issue. Scheme at, guess what? It's just a client. It, 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 you know, I got to make some money here or there. And you find one or two doctors that will really look at it like, oh, I look at my patient, guess what? This is, could be somebody's parent. But I've, I'm here, Ian, I'm telling you. I see my mother would do like a X-ray last week, a CAT scan last week. They refer to another doctor. They want her to do the same thing that they have the images for already. You know, I'm like, if you don't even support the, 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 the radiologist report, why not have your doctors look at it and give a report instead of doing it all over again? So you see, it's down to, it's like, they're playing a game with, with your loved one. You know, it, it, and that's that's one of the reasons why I'm here. I'm, I'm like, I gotta be the advocate on the ground. You know, I gotta take this on like fully. You know, and it's hard when you can't be there because there's gotta be a point when I can't be here. I have to leave back to America. And I'm just telling people, man, if you're out there and your parents, you you may take this thing for granted. That guess what, you're gonna have them all 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 year round. Guess what, man? There come a point when you're gonna be be worried. You're gonna be at that spot. It's like, man, did I spend enough time with her? Could I have done more? You know. And so I'm just saying, this time, just take this time to just embrace them. You know, give God thanks for what He had given to you, because they're all gift to us. Because without them, without my mother, there would not have been a me. You know, and I, I I cannot repay her for what she has done for me. And I'm just telling you, man, I'm hurting. I'm trying to heal, but nobody out there will know what's going on inside here you know we, we try to put on a show i tell you that much but it it, it, it is heart rendering man so you know about if you want to say something here but i'm just telling you to the people out there man it is real so embrace those, those loved ones and i think one of the most challenging things because i really like to shed light on this is just a whole other reason why you do want to take this into consideration is because you know um the isolation that comes along with when a person has to go into the hospital for that particular situation. You're, I mean, one of the things that you're fortunate is that you can actually go into, 
you know, treatments with your mom and so forth. But one of the issues a lot of families are facing is they can't physically be with their loved ones. Um, you know, you have a really busy hospital with nurses who have to do various things. And then, you know, obviously they can't give your loved one the attention that they really, really deserve for based on the, the condition that they're dealing with. Um, and a lot of people are facing that uh, where their loved ones are dying alone, is what, which is probably the most challenging, most difficult, most heart-wrenching thing that I had to deal with with that, not knowing that I couldn't physically be in there. There are certain things, well, I don't mind doing this, I don't mind doing that, um, but you, you just can't because of the way things are set up. Um, and, you know, it's a difficult way to, to lose your loved one, but people really need to take that into consideration when they're, you know, trying to go about their day-to-day -day life and being inconsiderate of who they could possibly affect because that's a huge challenge for the family that has to deal with not being able to physically be there with their loved ones as they go through this very challenging illness. Um, and even, you know, during the period where they have to die, to be able to have to die with strangers on the side of their bed. Um, so I always try to tell people, like, really think about that and think about if you would want your loved one to experience that. You know, I just saw the other, the, the numbers are so high. I feel like people are insensitive to um, exactly how this is affecting people, but it is a very real thing. And, you know, just just put your own loved one in the in the in that space in that mindset as you continue to go about your life and wonder how would I want my treated if they were in a scenario like that and understand that you making a decision to disregard what's going on could possibly put your loved one in that scenario where they're alone and by themselves and can't have you to support them as they're going through this life-changing and probably life-ending experience. Um, and that's what I really want to preach to people because that was extremely different to me. And I never fathomed that it would be the way that I would be, would, would, would end my mom's life, not being physically there to support her when she probably needed the most support in her life. All right, Mankur, if you look here, this is a whole sheet. You're not going to see, but I just read what, you know, and, and I just, in my down moment, I, I just had written a few stuff down here. And, you know, I, I think this is something that you may want to think about. Joint force, we do something. And I'll just read it out. I say, if you don't mind, I would love to turn my attention to my latest project, which was brought about by this pandemic. As a nurse, I have gotten a chance to see firsthand how badly our lives have been affected by this deadly disease called COVID-19. I've seen patients, family members passing away in hospital, long-term care facilities, and senior living without a single soul by their bedside. This makes me stop and think, what if I could be the voice for these people, the advocate that could bridge the gap between death and living? I could create a team that would take a time out to counsel both the patient and the family in time when social distance is the new norm. I saw myself communicating from the middle between the patient and their family. I also saw myself connecting them with the healthcare team that actually caring for the patient. As visitation had been long the thing of the past because of this deadly disease, I saw myself connecting them virtually and not just connecting them but also presenting myself as a mentor and a friend. So this grave, this 
gave birth to, a, to Together We Rise Healing Our Nation, a virtual healing platform where people don't have to die from their hospital bed without seeing their loved ones. And families on the outside would not have to worry what's happening to their loved ones on the inside because they are not allowed to visit. I wanted to close this gap between dying alone and living a fulfilling life to the very end. And really and truly what that means is that, you know, we're thinking of basically creating like a virtual healing platform where we could, you know, connect family and friends, whether through mentoring, sports, poetry, music, you know, and, you know, I, I, I really was looking into it because, you know, people, as you say, you're on the outside, you can't go in and visit the, the patient. You really don't know what's happening. You know, you can't speak to the doctors or so forth. So I was thinking if I could br build a bridge, because I'm a healthcare worker, I could talk to them. We could connect just like this. We could have that family one, you know, they're virtually on a platform where family could come together, at least give support. You know, yeah. I've not seen it being done, but I think it's needed because it, it's not healthy to be there in, in, in a little bed where no one by your bedside, you know, you're getting come from, from people you don't know. So as much as we are nurses, we can do little and so so much. It, it, it's like, it's not the same as having a loved one there that say, hey, mommy, it's okay. And, and rub your head, you know, give you a hug, embrace you. And, and this is, is really the part of it that is really hurting in this time. Because you don't have to go in for COVID, but because of the COVID protocol, you've been barred from the hospital. So yeah. it, it's really a di difficult time for everyone. And I, I really think that even we're on here, we could Think about how we could build a bridge to, to kind of you know, have something that at least have them being comfortable if they're even going to die, man. You know, because it, it, it's a sad case. And just working in the healthcare, I get to see this like firsthand. So, you know, like, you know, what you guys have to deal with, I'm sure is extremely challenging and at this point, very overwhelming, you know. Um, so definitely hats off to you. And, and all the other healthcare workers, because you know the work. I'm sure is frustrating when you see people not doing what they're supposed to do, um, and you know, of course, it's going to cause this to not come to a low period. But you know, the good thing is that we do have a vaccine. I don't know how the vaccine is going to work in the grand scheme of things. A lot of people are kind of iffy, um, but you know, there's actually a light to the end of the tunnel, and hopefully, you guys will get some relief soon in terms of this number these numbers coming down and so forth man you know we, 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 we both believe in god and you know we know this too shall pass but it's how long it's gonna last <laughs> it's, you know it, it's a tough one man and i'm like not to get into the political aspect of it but it was definitely uh leadership you know um this just blew my mind that people um with disregard um, the severity of something so serious, especially when you have a number that is racking up so much, you know, it just, it was unfortunate, but I've hopefully like, you know, the change of leadership, uh, people come into place with a more strategic plan, um, and, and a more realistic outlook that, you know, it really put this in the level, give it the level of attention that it deserves. And, you know, we would be able to um, curtail this and possibly save some people's lives. So, man, Amen. my condolence to you and the entire family, you know. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I, I'm glad I got through that. It was a little difficult, especially when you were talking with your mom. You yeah, know? I like it. Uh, it's, um, you know, I was, 
That's the luck. I'm just gonna, you know, if it's um, my respect to you, and um, if, if you know, I, if, if I'm glad you was able to talk about it, um, I hope that actually, um, you know, get something positive out of it. So, and you know, you did really well. Uh, and I said, I am, I am very, very proud of you. So let's just wrap, wrap it up. Um, just gonna end, uh, end on a, um, a different note here. <laughs> Um, in regarding to um, the, 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 the closing and my the last so I got two more questions so what, what advice would you would you have for young athletes now knowing that um, you know the experience and you know for someone that might be listening that you know gonna take the same step that you do they're gonna you know transition to the United States and come here to further their career and get an education uh what would what message would you there's one thing that you'd want to share with them that you think that is very important um fortunately for a lot of athletes there are so much information out there like you don't have to wait for someone's uh guidebook or some schools matter yeah. whatever you really can do the research on your own um you i would definitely tell them to do the research Find people around you that believe in what you're trying to accomplish that are that's positive and really try to educate yourself as an athlete in terms of what it really takes to be successful. That's nutrition, uh, you know, post-recovery, um, you know, mental and psychological uh, development. Uh, even though it sounds like very advanced, sometimes it, it only takes you, um, you know, listening to positive messages or you know creating positive affirmations for yourself or whatever but uh there's so much information out there really take advantage of that information but beyond that you know have the desire to uh, just want to go there and be the best version of yourself you know that is key it's just like you know a lot of people settle for mediocrity um but it really is you that have the ability to take yourself poverty out of extreme situations um and if you really take advantage of all of the new resources that are available that wasn't available in the 90s and part of the thou 2000 area um, take advantage of those things i really think that you could be extremely extremely successful and, and meet some of the personal objectives that you have so everyone has a phone i always tell you have a phone you know there's youtube on every phone i say youtube is your friend Utilize those resources and make yourself a better person, a stronger athlete um, from every different aspect. Nutrition, like I said, psychological and so forth. All right. So the guys are here from Avard Moncor, um, two-time NCAA champion, world champion, four-time Bahamian national champion. I've won uh, competing in, in several world championships and, you know, they in Pretty much, he have competed in, I would say, that every single um, championship, Pan American, CAC, Goodwill Games, um, you know, and the list goes on. So you pre you, pre you pretty much represent your country very well in, in every areas. So my closing question, and um, you know, this is just um, my favorite. Abroad, um, man, for how would you want to, uh, for all that you have accomplished, and you know for all your spirituality and all that you believe about yourself and all the lessons that you have learned from your mother and your grandmother and and, and the coaches 
how would you want to be remembered in your version of um, the type of athlete you are and the type of person that you have become? You know, uh, you know. In in the short, I know. Just give us the best version you can um, of, of of you picturing yourself looking at. Um, you know, you know yourself more than anybody else. But you know, what what would you say? Oh, whoa, that's, a, that's a heavy question. It's like, <laughs> you know, I would definitely want to be remembered as somebody who saw that it didn't matter where you came from or the circumstances that were placed before you or whatever your cards were dealt. It really is how you play those cards. It's really how you, your perspective on those things because that that's what worked for me. You know, I saw that I wasn't rich. I didn't have opportunities that were like other people that were around me. Um, but my mom told me that if you have life and you have breath, then anything that you put your mind to it has to be there for a reason that you must be able to achieve that so i would like to be considered somebody who didn't accept the status quo who didn't accept people's perspective of what i should be and basically created a path for myself and saw that come into fruition in my life by just making great decisions um, so that those things would be realized um, but someone who was always seeking to you know be the best version of myself at all times, you know? Um, that's something that everyone is constantly challenged with, you know? There's so many different distractions that are available, um, but I always seek to be the best version of myself because I know I'm not just a representation of myself, but also the legacy that I will leave behind for my children, uh, my nieces, my nephews, and anyone that may be inspired by my presence on this earth. All right, well said. Um, so again, um, just going to close my segment here. If, um, you know, if Ian, Ian could close it out. So again, sir, uh, Ward, um, I've competed, um, you know, pretty much um, probably about seven or eight years with, you know, traveling around on the circuit. Um, um, we was at the 2000 Olympics. Edmonton, the Commonwealth Games, um, you know, um, then I um, I wasn't able to keep up with you, so I fall off. Um, <laughs> you know, so I, I was not the 2004 Olympics, and then, you know, I pick it up back in 05, and then I went back to Commonwealth Games. So I've, I've seen your career and, and what you have accomplished, and I said, you helped definitely pave the way for athletes like Stephen Gardner right now, who has been compared to you, um, terms of um you know you guys are are, are tall and you know you, you built it um you know so with with all of that i just want to say that it was an honor uh, and a pleasure just to um know you um as as a person that um humbled uh you know very respectful you know and always be um a gentleman you know in um on and off the track um you know i never hear anything negative about you from nowhere <laughs> so that speaks abuse i just want to say that man um you know you've been a good ambassador for yourself and for your country and um you have represent yourself very well and um you know i'm con i'm sure you continue to 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 to, to represent yourself and make your family proud and make your mom proud and you know um you know and you have i've made history 
um, for for all that you have done, you know, and um, you know, I know that, um, yeah, you know, I, I know a world championship is coming up in Oregon, so maybe you get a chance to sit back as a fan and watch some track one of these days, you know. <laughs> I could enjoy it a little longer. Can I use one one last word? You know, when I see someone like a Stephen Gardner, who I think is like haven't even tapped into his real ability yet, because he's didn't go through the university system, and and I don't know that if my performance inspired him or anything, but what I do know and understand is that the young males in our country, um, to see them compete at this high level and no longer stagnant in a place where oh well, Avar was the greatest ever. I never wanted to be the greatest ever because I understood how much talent exists in our country, in the in Jamaica, in the Caribbean, and it'll always be my wish that experiences like a Stephen Gardner, and hopefully one of these years we'll see another Usain Bolt, those things continue to rise so that region will be able to shine in a way that we could never have imagined many, many years ago. All right, well said um, with that. And um, so Ian, I'm gonna let you close the program out. Um, just wanna say a final word. Well, uh, I, first I just wanna give a shout out to this gentleman here, um, Gary Barnes, um, basically um, one of the Stetsonian. Um, basically we were in the same year batch at Stets. And it seems like every time Gear would end this um, program for us before, <laughs> you know, we can get to ending it, Gear been ending it because he basically find the right word to say. And tonight he, he have hit it, the nail on the head again because I'll I just read his statement here. He see, I can see that Avard is a very humble and has a strong faith in God. He will do well in any path that he, he chooses. Avard, with that said, man, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for being on the program, Ian and Ian. Thank you for taking the time out from your busy schedule or just your time alone, time, your family time, to just be here with us to share your story, your journey, and also the fact that you have shared with us your grief. You know, your grief, because I'm telling you, I, I can probably associate with this much of it, but you know, for you to come on here and share so much, I know our audience will walk away and they will be inspired and they will take something from this. And you know, I, I'm just saying, man, you're a strong man. Be encouraged. Continue to walk God's path. And I just tell you, your latter shall be greater. You know, and and the Lord is gonna use you mightily. You know, you said you don't have a foundation or anything yet, but guess what? It's not going to be your will. It's going to be his will. And, and he's just going to throw you right in your passion too. So just look out for it because, you know, he's not going to put you through all of this and not have a, a plan for you, man. You know, I say sometimes when we're in our darkest moment, that's when you see that hand reach out and hold us and embrace us when we need it. And I just know this is now going to be your season, man. Just relax and just know that God got you. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I just want to say that I honestly see, um, I, I, I hear your story and I'm really seeing a book. Um, <laughs> in a, I mean, your story really, 
you know, from from it, it really should be in the schools in Bahamas, you know, um, you know. So you should seriously consider it about, um, you know, put your story in a book, um, you know, uh, for, for for what you have done, and so other kids back home could read it and 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 see that. Look, if he do it, I could do it too. Yeah, that's, that's a thought. I never, you know, I was thinking, you know, in my mind is like so boring. <laughs> but, you, know, you just never think how that could inspire somebody. But thank you guys for creating this platform for someone like me to come on and be able to share um, my personal experience. Um, hopefully, somebody will be inspired by that. And uh, you know, that's that, that's this is the kind of thing that changes the world when people create platforms like this and you know create the experience use the experiences of other people to share with other people so they are inspired all right so thank you very much and i said it was a pleasure and um you know we hope that you enjoy some of the time the rest of the day i know you're probably going in the office tomorrow so um you know to you know so have a great rest of the evening and walk good stay safe and um we'll you know we'll be in touch all right have a good one man